0: Hello fellow history lovers and welcome back to my channel. My name is Philippa lacey Bruel, and if you love British history then you are definitely in the right place. This week we're going to be doing a bit of a roundup of what happened in British history between the 6th and the 12th of January. We have Henry VIII's fourth marriage, the funeral of a national hero and a few other stories as well that I think you're going to find interesting. So let's get started. On the 6th of January 1540, Henry VIII married his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. A political match, the marriage took place at the Palace of Placentia, Greenwich, otherwise known to us as Greenwich Palace, which unfortunately most of it doesn't exist any longer. She was 24, he was 48 and the marriage was going to be doomed. Following the break of England from Rome, England was almost entirely on its own in a Catholic Europe loyal to the Pope. And this marriage was supposed to give some sort of political alliance and support to Henry. This was the first and final time that Henry's bride would be chosen for him. And although Henry hadn't chosen Anne for himself, he was quite taken with this idea of marrying her, carrying around Holbein's miniature of her, with him and indeed it was this romantic possibly notion that he had of this blind date of a marriage going to be somehow very exciting and a true love match that probably led to its worst start Henry couldn't wait to meet Anne and so he decided rather than wait in London for her that he would find her en route and he and his male friends in disguise decided to play out a courtly love ritual. Anne was approached by a tall burly man who tried to kiss her and so she repelled his advances but this was the start of the end for Henry and Anne's marriage because the man who had approached her was in fact Henry. And when I first heard this story, I thought, would Henry be happy that his future wife would repel a stranger who just tried to kiss her? But this was the era of courtly love. And true love should have been able to shine through the disguises, the fact that this couple hadn't actually met before. And Anne had failed her first test. Not only had Anne failed but she had publicly embarrassed Henry by rejecting him outright on their first meeting. Poor Anne who'd never met Henry in real life up to this point had very little knowledge of the courtly love rituals of the English court really stood no chance of getting this right. Henry stayed with Anne on the wedding night and he stayed with her for a further three nights. But reported that the marriage was never consummated, that this couple had never had sex. Of course, he would cite Anne as the reason for the lack of consummation, although by this point it is possible that he was experiencing periods of impotence. And also, we already know that from their first meeting, he didn't want this marriage, and Henry was a man who married for love and for attraction. The couple were married for six months in the end, before the marriage was annulled. Not a divorce, as the misleading rhyme tells us. The annulment meant that the the marriage hadn't really legally existed in the first place. Having said that, Henry bestowed on her a nice settlement, a generous settlement, which meant that Anne would be comfortable for the rest of her life, and he really did take care of her in that respect. Anne, for her part, cooperated with the separation negotiations. could have been intelligence on her part and cunning, or perhaps she just didn't have much of a choice as to what she was going to do in this situation, in a foreign country, still not really knowing the language. So was Anne really as unattractive as Henry reported? Well, you can make up your own mind from Holbein's portrait. He was a man known for a good likeness, to real life, and perhaps there was the odd equivalent of a Snapchat filter made in some of the portraits, but we can get a good idea, I think, of what Anne looks like. And she is, I would say, more attractive than some of Henry's other wives. <gasps> Controversial. On the day of the annulment of the marriage, Henry wrote to Anne to let her know that in less than a week she would have the details of her settlement. He wrote to her in really friendly terms, speaking of her as his friend and sister and signing off your loving brother and friend. And these don't appear to have been empty words. He bestowed on her a generous package, a generous settlement um, of an annual income and properties in Kent, including the right to uh, lease Hever Castle, the childhood home of Anne Boleyn. Anne was welcome at court, indeed, At the following Christmas New Year celebrations, it was Anne who stayed up to dance with Henry's new queen, Catherine Howard, when Henry had gone to bed. So what happened to Anne? Anne outlived Henry and all of his wives and is the only one of all of them to be buried at Westminster Abbey. On the 9th of January 1806, Vice Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson was buried with the honours of a full state funeral at St. Paul's Cathedral. His body had lain in state for two days from the 6th to the 8th of January in the painted hall at the old Royal Naval College, Greenwich, on the site of the uh, old Greenwich Palace. On the 8th, his body was moved by river procession past the Tower of London where Cannon were fired to spend one final night before the funeral at Admiralty House on Whitehall. Nelson had died almost two months earlier on the 21st of October 1805 aboard the HMS Victory during the Battle of Trafalgar. A shot fired from the French ship Redoubtable passed through Nelson's shoulder, through his lungs and lodged in his spine. He was shot at 1.15 in the afternoon, but he didn't die until 4.30, the bullet causing him to bleed internally. But he did live long enough to be told the news that they, the battle had been won and they were victorious. On the morning of the funeral, Nelson's body was taken from Abonty House in a cortege that was longer than the just under one and a half miles that it was from Admiralty House on Whitehall to St. Paul's Cathedral in the City of London. His coffin, made from the mast of a previously um, destroyed sh- enemy ship, Lorient, was taken on a purpose-built carriage which had been carved to look like the prow and stern, front and the back of HMS Victory. Nelson was taken into the cathedral and his coffin lay on a platform under the great dome. During the service, his body was processed, or his coffin was processed up the nave and placed in front of the altar. The coffin was brought back from the altar to a great dirge which had actually been written especially for the occasion and laid back on the platform under the dome. His coffin was then lowered into the crypt where he is actually resting in a black marble sarcophagus intended for Henry VIII and originally commissioned by his chief minister Thomas Wolsey. Visitors to London will recognise the name Trafalgar Square, named after Nelson's victory and of course Nelson's Column which has the statue of Nelson towering 52 metres above the square. And now I want to tell you a story that is about more ordinary folk but no less extraordinary in its detail. On the 12th of January 1899 a lifeboat crew based at Lynmouth in Devon set out to help the stricken schooner the Forest Hall which had got into trouble on the coast. But this was going to be no ordinary rescue. They couldn't launch the boat from Lynmouth, the harbour had flooded and it wasn't going to happen. So, they didn't give up. They decided to take the lifeboat called the Louisa from Lynmouth all the way to Porlock. Now, the way the terrain works over Exmoor is it's extremely hilly and it took a lot of effort. 18 horses were used to pull the Louisa on a carriage from Lynmouth over to Porlock. To get out of Lynmouth in the first place, it's, uh, it's, a, it's at the bottom of a gorge, and it took the horses, the crew, and even women and children from the town got involved and helped get this boat to the top of the hill. It went the 13 miles to Porlock, negotiating a one in four hill in Porlock, it's actually called Porlock Hill, it's quite a famous hill in England, and they got it down to the beach. They had left at eight o'clock on the evening and they had taken ten hours to get Louisa over to Porlock. This is before they had even got into the sea. The crew rowed the lifeboat it was a man-powered this is 1899 it was a man-powered lifeboat out to the now rudderless uh, forest hall and uh, and the, the crew are credited with saving the lives of all of those men on board and the ship also in this week 10th of january 1839 and tea from india arrives for the first time in the uk And how thankful are we for that? Oh gosh, I do love that. 12th of January, 1836, and the HMS Beagle, with Charles Darwin aboard, lands at Sydney. A little more recent, but just as pivotal in history, 8th of January, 2007, and Steve Jobs announces the launch of the Apple iPhone. Thank you for watching this episode of This Week in British History with me, Philip Pelosi-Brule. If you did enjoy it, please do give it the thumbs up, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell so that you can get notifications when I upload a new video each week. And if you can't wait that long, then come along to my Facebook or Instagram for daily posts. In the show notes, I have included some of my sources and also some further reading links to the stories that we have covered today. But please feel free, if you know of any other resources that would be great for people interested in these stories, please feel free to put them in the comments. Thank you for watching. See you next time.